Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Mets search for a general manager is out to the oxygen here at the GM meetings in Carlsbad, California this week. Sandy Alderson was asked about that several times. There are interviews, there are discussions, there is digging, and that whole thing is ongoing. Although it will wrap up pretty soon. The Mets might even make a hire within the next couple of days. But beyond that immediate story, perhaps an even bigger one for all of New York baseball, both the Mets and the Yankees, is that both teams are clearly preparing for a big-spending, aggressive winner. They're both going to be highly active in free agency. The Yankees are looking at all of the star shortstops, whether they end up with a Corey Seager or a Carlos Correa or a Javi Baez. They're looking to do that and more this winter. The Mets, meanwhile, are not going to be frugal at all. Alderson openly saying that they're going to blow by whatever the luxury tax threshold ends up being. They're looking for high-end starting pitching. Uh, they're going to be aggressive in all fronts in improving that roster. The wrinkle here is that we don't know exactly when this offseason is going to start in earnest. There's a lot of pessimism about the labor situation. The agents met about that here on the final day of the meetings, and it does seem like we're going to have a lockout. When that lockout is over, however, whenever that is, whether it's weeks or months, the Mets and the Yankees are going to be big spenders and aggressive buyers on this free agent market this winter. It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday, November the 14th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. 
and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, no G. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And of course, check out our great friends at Fansided as we are part of the Fansided Podcasting Network. And the guys over at RisingApple.com deserve plenty of attention. Great work they're doing over there. Welcome into another edition of the program. Hope everybody's doing well. And I uh, noticed, and I wanted to start off here, no guests today. I'm just going to kind of recap as the Mets just came out of the GM meetings and um, uh, still really no news. We're We're in such a dynamic, odd time in this team's history where here it is two weeks, two weeks, less than two weeks before Thanksgiving. No GM, no president of baseball operations. There's not going to be a president of baseball operations. No manager, no sense of urgency to get any of those. And I honestly got to tell you, with the way that sports is going and the structure of organizations, it doesn't really drive me crazy. But I want to start out by just setting the record straight, because I think when I had, or the theme of the show last week, when I had Rich Mancuso, our our good friend who's been doing tons of stuff over many, many decades, and now over at New York Sports Day, both of us had spoke about analytics and kind of how the Mets have gone all in here, and the possibility that we broached that maybe it's too much. I mean, as of last report, the Mets have 26 people in their analytics department, which in this day and age, it's like a if a lack of a better word, this is like baseball nuclear warfare. If they have nuclear warheads, which are analytics guys, we need to have nuclear warheads because, you know, the guy who has the most wins, I'm not sure that's the case, certainly in uh, baseball. But um, I never said, because people had said, oh, what a rough listen. You guys sounded like you were yelling at the clouds. And listening back, I guess I could understand that sentiment. Uh, But... Really, my concern with what's going on, and I think it'll go into the Adam Cromey uh, situation, the potential new hire, who's rumored anyway, and who knows what how close he is or whatnot. Maybe here it is late Sunday night, and we don't even know what's going on, and, and perhaps there's more to come. And, and I have a feeling we're going to hear some news before Thanksgiving, but I have no problem with the Mets expanding their analytics department and obviously adding this tool in a big-time way. They've always been behind the eight ball. I mean, from the going back to the, the old report that when Moneyball, the book, came out, Fred Wilpon handed it to all his baseball people and said, read it, we need to start implementing these things. And if there's a, a cursory 101 way of getting into analytics by reading a book by Michael Lewis, which outlined in a top-line way, a a story or narrative about analytics. I mean, that's it. So the Mets have gone, I think, full circle. But what I really have wanted to point out that analytics, in a lot of ways, and this goes back to when I ran NYBD, is almost like this religion within the game. And it's always been about power and power over decision-making. And if you don't think that that's been the case... And I said that many, many years ago. I, you know, I wrote an article about it, and because that website is now defunct, I can't even share it with you guys. I tried to go back to the Wayback Machine and find it, but they're actually proposing the baseball owners. And I don't know, you know, if somehow this is in their favor, because I was looking at some of the results of this. But 
they're actually proposing using fan graphs, wins above replacement, converted to dollars as a way to replace arbitration. And specifically fan graphs. So if you don't think analytics was a revolution, a religion, and the owners over the course of time have said, how can we bring this in to win and gain an advantage over the players? You haven't been watching. You haven't been paying attention. By the way, if you go by that analytics uh, kind of mindset where you convert the war into the dollars and everything, you know, J.D. Davis was worth $12.5 million this year. J.D. Davis did not have a great year. He had an okay year, and I think he's a much better player than he showed. He probably was injured with that hand injury most of the year. Tyler McGill was worth $5 bucks. So it's going to change the dynamic uh, quite a bit. It makes you wonder if you're going to start going that route, what's the trade-off and what have you. But you're handing the power of these guys' purses. You're handing the power of how decision-making will go in the game to one entity, Fangraphs. Why Fangraphs over baseball reference? I mean, everybody has their own brew. And obviously, there's going to be a formula attached to it. And you always, and the one thing I've always said about analytics, because it was always positioned where it's about truth and science. And there's not one absolute truth about numbers. We know who good players are and who bad players are. And sometimes it's the middle class or the guys in between that could look better or worse depending on how you view analytics. Albert Pujols is a Hall of Famer regardless of what analytic query you do. But everybody looks and values things differently. If you value strikeouts in a pitcher, it that those guys are going to float to the top of any kind of analytical type of situation. Look, wins above replacement is not going to look at guys, if you want to go back to the 60s and 70s, guys like Felix Mion, Mets fans remember him, Mark Belanger, a great shortstop for the Orioles. I mean, heck, even Tony Gwynn, a Hall of Famer, a guy that some of us in this audience watched growing up, who was a tough out, never struck out, made contact, not a guy you want to see with runners on base late in the game. In 1994, the strike shortened season, Tony Gwynn nearly hit 400, had way more walks than strikeouts. He had a wins above replacement, according to fan graphs, of four. This year, Brandon Nimmo, who only played in 92 games, and I love Brandon Nimmo, and I think he's an elite run creator, and he could be in my lineup every day, and he's a great guy, but he had a war of three and a half. And if he had played 162 games, he would basically exceed Tony Gwynn's 1994. Guys, I got to tell you, look, they could both be on my team, but Brandon Nimmo is no Tony Gwynn. Let's put it that way. Uh, So it goes to show you how stats and numbers, uh, if they are used as a too big of a portion of the decision making, it kind of goes, you know, sideways. Andrew Haney, pitcher for the uh, Yankees. Andrew Haney, who I think, you know, there's no Yankee fans. Well, maybe there is Yankee fans in the audience. All week we've been hearing about how, you know, undervalued he is because he has this great swing and miss rate. And, you know, he gets this $9 million, nearly $9 million deal from the Anaheim Angels. And the guy had an ERA over seven. And all I keep hearing is, well, his FIP or his ex-FIP shows that he's, you know, a much better pitcher than he, you know, pretends to be. And I'm like, since when? I mean, and, and think about, and, and I was criticizing a little bit of the Mets here, kind of going out and giving Noah Syndergaard an $18.4 million qualifying offer. I'm like, ah, there's no way. You know, you get that guy for two years, 12 million bucks. 
And if analytics is going to give Andrew Haney nearly $9 million, then shoot. Yeah, though a Syndergaard's worth 18. But so, but do you see? I mean, and I, I can't really figure out if it's in the best benefit of the front office or the players. I mean, in that example, it's certainly the players. But I'm not anti-analytics. But be careful about how you hand the game over to quants and numbers, because you could get a lot of Andrew Haney in quants and numbers, and you could get a lot of hey, I think Tony Gwynn's not a good player or as good of a player with quants and numbers. And that's why it's so important in my estimation that as the Mets build this organization, and that's the key as I get into the whole GM conversation and my reaction to Sandy Alderson's comments uh, from out in California. Uh, The Mets are building an organization, and that organization starts with Steve Cohen. Steve Cohen runs .72, and he's a billionaire many times over, and obviously his day job is running that organization, and he's got tons of people running that for him, but He's going to be firmly involved, and the Mets and I believe their uh, fabric of who they are are going to start and end with Steve Cohen. And anybody reads Black Edge, and I highly recommend, even though it's not anywhere near a baseball book or a book just about Steve Cohen, really should read it because I had a chance to read most of it. Steve Cohen is hands-on, hands-on. And maybe that's why a lot of these potential candidates want to stay away because what Steve Cohen's bringing, he's bringing the hard edge, the shark tank of Wall Street to the New York Mets. And I'm sure when you work in that office, you have to answer to him. You better have the right answers and you better be ready to win and compete and and find whatever that opportunity is to get ahead of the game. You better find that. I think that that probably scares a lot of individuals. I saw what Joel Sherman wrote. And I saw how he put out there, and I think it was free. I don't think it was on Post Plus, but he talked about, you know, the Mets' problem is is that they've been the Mets. They haven't been successful, that they always seem to want to blame somebody else for their problems. And that's the way of the media trying to justify the agenda they have against them. And, uh, you know, look, the Mets have done a lot to harm themselves. But when you set up a lot of banana peels out there, Inevitably, anybody's going to step on them, no matter how crafty they are. They set up a lot of more, a lot more banana peels for the Mets than they do for a lot of other teams in this town. Let's put it this way. But be that as it may, because this is going to be Steve Cohen's team, and because it's going to be in the face of what he believes is important, data, analytics, big spending, I'm really not at this point all that concerned about who winds up taking over this organization because... Outside of a transcendent type of individual, and I'm going to put David Stearns in Milwaukee, who I'm not so sure is transcendent. He's certainly an up-and-coming executive. I mean, he hasn't won anything yet. He's got a, a nice team that makes the postseason in a market where it's not easy to win. That's a big deal. But remember, he hasn't won anything. He's not Theo Epstein. He hasn't solved two curses. But putting the rumor aside that eventually he's going to be here as Mets president of baseball operation whenever that contract is up. I think everybody else, and I said this really when they were doing the managerial search a couple of years ago, you could put a blanket over the rest of these guys, pull one out, and they're all pretty much the same. I've always said the one that has the most player development experience would be my choice. That's what Billy Epler, who comes from the Yankee organization, really worked his way up. If there, if And I know he's with an agency now, so I don't know, from what I talked to somebody... They're kind of confused about why he'd want to get back into this if he's working in an agency. But 
maybe that's a consulting gig and, and maybe he's not all that interested in that world. I, I know the argument is, well, what did he do in Anaheim? Well, again, you know, winning is hard and, and sometimes there's a lot of things that go into a team that we don't know about that are out of your control. I mean, you know, you could be a good executive and do a lot of good decisions and for a variety of reasons, things don't work out as a team. I mean, Anaheim did make the playoffs. I mean, they didn't go far and they keep hearing about how Mike Trout never won a postseason series, but baseball is not about one guy. It's not the NBA. It's not an NFL quarterback. So, it doesn't really bother me that you're hearing all these names. And I'm not going to be one that's going to get into, well, nobody wants to work for the Mets. I think everybody knows the Mets in New York is a tough job. And I agree with Sandy Olsen. He said exactly what I've been saying. This is a tough job. This is a tough job in the best of times. This is a tough job now that there's expectations. This is even a tougher job where there's money. See, when you didn't have any money, there was a little bit of it out there. When there was that cash flow situation where you were a big market team, but you were at the very bottom of the big market. Like Steve Phillips has said many times on his show over on SiriusXM, the Mets job is the toughest because you have the expectations of the Yankees, but you do not have the funds of the Yankees. That has changed. So it makes it even harder. So what does Adam Cromie represent? And I laugh because here's the media. Here's the analytics crowd. Here's the whole which has now become the establishment. Laughing and making fun, I saw the headline over at the New York Post that the Mets are hiring a guy that hasn't been in baseball in four years. Well, give the guy credit. He's actually gone out and switched careers and gone into law, probably started at a level where he's got to really put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and all those things. And, you know, he did it because if you read a little bit about him, when he was a young man, and he's still a young man, but a younger man, he wanted to either go into law or baseball. And here's a guy that basically worked for nothing for the Washington Nationals and came up and became assistant GM in an organization where he probably learned a lot. He built a lot of their uh, database infrastructure and tied into analytics. He's a guy that sounds like from a business management standpoint that likes to build somewhat of a decision tree type of uh, analysis. And I think that when you are going into an organization that is owned by a guy that's coming from a data-driven Wall Street business, what he's going to say is, I don't care about the person coming in and being transcendent. He's not looking for Lou Lamarillo. He's not looking for Pat Gillick. He's not looking for like a Pat Riley or Bill Parcells to come in. He's saying, I'm going to set the tone of the kind of organization I want and the things we value. And each department kind of is their own little thing, but it'll take one person to bring it all together, and the best of analytics, the best of scouting, so on and so forth, I need that person to bring them together and then build this kind of symphony of decision-making that goes out there. It's a very corporate, in my opinion, way of looking at things. It's not a sports way of looking at things. Traditionally, what we look at as sports fans is there's that one guy. Think about how Bill Parcells, I want to be the cook and, and get the ingredients and all this other stuff. That's not sports today. That's not going to be sports with the New York Mets. Cromie is going to be a middle, he'll be a GM, but he'll be a middle manager type that is a piece in a bigger wheel. And that wheel includes a lot of different people and existing people. I laugh when people say, well, why would I want to come on and be the manager of the Mets if I have, you know, I already have my pitching coach selected for me? Well, when you come on as a GM or, or a manager, you already have Pete Alonso at first. Now you could trade him. 
But it's not like all of a sudden a new guy comes in and says, oh, that's it, get it, blow it out, every single person, get out of here, start from scratch. Now, there are people that want to do that. And certainly when you talk about an organization, when you run an organization, you want to have some of your own people because there's going to be a lot of people that may have wanted your job, have a different mindset than you. That's not how this is going to work. You're going to be in a true corporate organization. When you get a job in a law firm, you run a department. Yeah, you could make you have autonomy changes and what have you, but you can't blow the whole thing up day one. They don't they don't all of a sudden not hire certain people till they find you. And that's how Cohen's doing this thing. Now, Chromie to me falls into the kind of guy that I probably wouldn't hire. Doesn't look like he has a lot of player development experience. I admire the fact that he's worked his way up basically from an unpaid intern. He was with a good organization. And look, a guy like Mike Rizzo, who he worked under, the Nationals are kind of the, the type of organization the Mets would love to be. Nationals may have only won one World Series, and they've had some ups and downs over the last decade, and it looks like they're in the rebuilding phase. But you can't deny that team was in no man's land in 2007, 2008, 2009. Rizzo comes in and redoes that organization. They're in the playoffs under Davey Johnson, of all people. And, you know, they were perennially uh, a contender, winning multiple division titles and then finally, finally winning the World Series in 2019. So he wasn't around for that, but he was around as they built up into... Uh, being a very formidable contender and being a postseason uh, each and every uh, season. So uh, I think that he's a, if this is who the hire is, it tells you what they value, that this organization right now is looking at the players and looking at what they have as commodities, and they're going to be straight out using analytics as the lion's share of their decision-making. I'm not saying scouting is not going to be important. I just think it's going to be less important. And look, anybody who's read uh, about the Astros and Jeff Lunhow knows that they phased out a lot of the, not all scouting, but a lot of scouting. And you don't think Steve Cohen is looking into what made successful teams? You don't think that he's seen that maybe as what he wants? And Houston, forget about sign stealing. And I said that already. Is there any other uh, phony uh, person than Brian Cashman who will easily sign Carlos Correa now that he's a free agent, but railed against sign stealing? If you really have morals about sign stealing, you'd never sign any of their players. But I digress. That's what this organization is going to be. This organization is going to be a data-driven organization run by a lot of people that could manage the data and be really smart at logistics and analysis and quants and, and, and numbers and things that are far above, I think, my head and your head, um, things that are way beyond our, our, our reproach. And it's not uh, the kind of people that go on baseball reference that are really good at memorizing stats. These are people that know how to really build these models and understand what makes a good player and understand how these different models find those undervalued assets like an Andrew Haney maybe or tell you whether or not it's worth giving Michael Conforto six years, $150 million, or do you sign Javier Baez to a long-term deal, or is Syndergaard a good value at $18.4 million? And you know what? There's nothing wrong with all that, but you have to start to look at things with some common sense, eyes-on-the-field baseball type of knowledge. You heard Kevin Kern in a ball nine, long-time journalist on this show a few weeks ago. How many times would he look down at the dugout and he would see Luis Rojas looking at his binder trying to figure out you know what was going on not watching the game and a lot of times watching the game 
with the information and knowledge that you use to prep for the game is is invaluable. Just like using your knowledge and your common sense and knowing these players, knowing whether you give a guy a long-term contract, he's going to you know, lose his hunger, or how's this guy going to play in New York? And I think Sandy Alderson has even talked a little bit about that in relation to Javi Baez and in the aspect of there are intangibles that are not going to fall into those data analysis and whatnot. So at this point, you know, look, anybody, and then one name that's come out that's viable now, Billy Epler, would be my choice. Like, I think, again, the guy from the Yankees organization, a lot more experienced than Chromie. Uh, believe it or not, I was reading about him. He's a guy that has, you know, some old school scouting chops, but because he was analytically inclined to combine that, Joe Torre in his book, The Yankees Years, looked at him as part of the problem as far as the guys that took the heartbeat out of the game. And think about how far we've come when the whole guys like Joe Torre were writing books about how analytics and numbers destroyed the Yankees and specifically pushed him out of his job in New York towards the end. Uh, and how, how far we've come on that, where now, that's the hub. Analytics is the hub. And if you're a scout, or you're someone that's into player development, and you know you only have cursory knowledge of analytics, well, guess what? You're on the outside looking in, and there's probably no room at the table, and that's dangerous. And at this point, look, you got a great owner that has money. Well, you know you have an owner that has cash flow, money, and resources. And nothing is more music to Mets fans' ears than hearing Sandy Olderson say they have a lot of latitude with payroll. Because we haven't heard that in a long, long time. Knowing that the Mets probably already, if they want to field a semi-competitive team, have to blow through that luxury tax. They would never be able to accomplish that under the old ownership. As a matter of fact, you probably would be looking for a teardown and a rebuild if the Wilpons were still owners, even if COVID didn't happen and the COVID economy didn't happen in sports. So, to me... You know, that's that. One last thing before I take a break, and when we come back, I'll talk a little bit about how I think we learned about the Mets offseason strategy for players. Look at this. We know the organizational strategy before there's someone in place. Guess what? Because that person's being told, hey, this is the strategy we're employing. That person's not building the strategy. They're being told because it's about the organization now. This is not about one person. Think about that. This Once those big names came off the board, it now became an organization and everybody has their role. And of course, you have somebody at the head of the table that has to bring it all together. Sandy Alderson doesn't want to be that person. I don't think he's qualified anymore to be that person. So who will that person be? We'll see. I think we'll have an answer soon. Now, as far as the manager, guess what? Listen to what Alderson said. They don't care who the manager is. You're getting another version of Luis Rojas, which is a shame that they fired Rojas, and it sounds like uh, Steve Cohen's punishing pretty much anybody involved in the thumbs-down gate. Kevin Pillar is gone. Uh, You know, you can't get rid of Lindor, and I think Baez has looked at differently, especially because as a front man, he kind of took the brunt of it. Rojas is gone. So basically... Rojas is gone, even though Sandy Alderson wanted him coming back, and that would have been the smart move, especially based on everything that you see, to give the guy another year. You know, you're bringing in a a GM. uh, It just would have made sense. I mean, even with Epler around, I can't see them going out and getting experienced if if Epler got the job. I couldn't see them going out and bringing an experienced manager like a Socher or a Buck Showwater. Look, those guys are dinosaurs, and they don't care about the manager because the manager is there to keep the club accountable, 
motivated, and on track with the organization's philosophy. This is no different than, I mean, I hate to use this term because it's going to be looked at negatively and it's going to be looked at almost like I'm injecting politics into it, but I'm not. That's not my intent. This is like baseball socialism. You have the government, which is the organization that sets the tone and everybody falls into line. And look, you think Adam Cromie or Billy Epler is going to come in and say, you know what, analytics, we're going to reduce the emphasis on analytics and we're going to go with a hard, hardcore scouting philosophy. Of course not. That's not what Cohen wants. Brian Sabin was, was not even on the radar, probably because he was too strong of a personality. And the manager... They get the lineup handed to them. You heard what Chili Davis said in the interview. You heard it. I don't agree with that. I'd love to have dated printouts if I was the manager and suggestions about how to go about my job. You know, it's like when you play, anybody who plays Stratomatic knows that you have an option where you could play the actual lineups for a season and replay the season. So all you have to do is show up and manage the game. The lineups are done for you day in and day out. It's great. You go in, you know, no thinking required. Building a lineup kind of feeling out where guys go not so much where they hit but who should go in who should go out you know do they fit well here you know how do they feel you know obviously the manager is going to have some input as to how the players feel physically and maybe add their two cents into it but ultimately they're going to use the the computer to do it so that that job is off his, his plate it's going to be critically important to communicate and keep the, everybody on, on, on point. You heard the story about McNeil and his aversion to the shift. And then you got to manage the media. And maybe they could get someone more dynamic that can manage the media, give them enough meat on the bone without the whole bone, and, and, and maybe turn around some of the negativity. Because when you partner and you're good with the media, they will give you good press, even in times of crisis. That has not happened here in a long time. They did it with Terry Collins, believe it or not, which was maybe that's what Terry deserves more credit for than anything else. He was a lousy manager with the bullpen. And I don't even know if that matters anymore because if you're going to have everything done analytically, maybe they have that script played out about the bullpen and with all the information they have, it's probably a lot easier. There's less go at your gut type of bullpen moves and away you go. So my message is this. Let's not get crazy about the fact that the Mets don't have a GM, don't have a president of baseball operations, don't have a manager. They have an organization, and they have an owner with money, and they have a philosophy put in there. And everybody coming in is just going to fit a, like a block into an overall scheme. Now, if it fails, the owner is accountable. He's the one that's setting the tone here. Now, I'm not saying Cohen's telling them who to put in the game, and but if Steve Cohen wants Javi Baez... And it fits all his philosophy, even if that doesn't always fit into whatever the numbers make out on the paper. He's going to get Javi Baez. Doesn't matter if it's Adam Cromie, Billy Epler, if Mike Schultz the manager, Luis Rojas the manager, he's going to get not going to change. So get this idea out of your head that, oh, the Mets are in trouble. The Mets are an organization. They're a corporation. And they're looking for middle managers to keep going forward. And just because they don't have him today on November 14th, which is heresy in baseball circles, doesn't mean they can't win and it doesn't mean that they're not going to have somebody. Because in their eyes, it doesn't matter as long as they get the person that fits them. And by the way, I'll leave you with this before we take a break. Because of all the you know research that some people in the media do to get somebody's past out there and try to ruin their reputation, 
for even the smallest infraction, you got to do due diligence. And they're probably combing all these candidates past to make sure they never offended somebody when they got a cup of coffee at Starbucks because, oh, that person who got offended might come out 15 years later and tell their story. And, oh, here we are. You got Jared Porter and Zach Scott all over again. That's it. That's what I got. So I'm not anti-analytics, but I'm also very real about where this organization's going, where baseball's going. I think the Andrew Haney signing tells you a lot about where this game is going. Look at the numbers. Look at how they're applauding the advanced statistics. And I pretty much promise you, based on my eyes and novice baseball knowledge, Andrew Haney's not going to be any different this year. He'll probably be another bad season. And everybody will say, well, but he misses a lot of bats. Well, your lying eyes sometimes are what you need to go. You know, what is the old saying? Your eyes don't lie. Your eyes don't lie. I can't remember the saying anyway. But, all right, let's take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, the Mets basically told you a little bit about their free agent philosophy and their team-building philosophy. And I think we could at least start to chat about and get an idea of the kind of players they could target. And I don't think you need to have a GM to do that because when the GM comes in, the blueprint's going to be pretty much, in the short term at least, laid out for them. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Yeah, there's a couple ways, Gary. There's, you know, there's some talk about Chris Bryant. You could do it that way. Obviously, Bryant's a really good player. I think I would I would sign Marte, put him in center field. I know they've been they've been uh, talking about him for a couple years now. I think he, he'd be an upgrade in center. And then, you know, you, he would change the element of the offense. He would he'd bring speed, high contact guy, high average guy. Stole 47 bases last year. Uh, I think that would change the way the offense is, is, is built a little bit. And then you could put McNeil in right field, maybe Nimmo in right field, depending on how you want to do it. And I think they're going to sign another outfielder as well because uh, it doesn't look like Pilar is going to be back. Whether they have the money to get a Rosario, Eddie Rosario, something like that, you can fill that outfield, uh, and that gives you plenty of uh, ways to go out there. I like Marte in center field. I like that idea, Harp. I think that as it is something that we talked about a lot last year. I think Nimmo um, has certainly shown that he deserves to play every day and be at the top of that lineup in the Mets outfield. I don't know whether that's going to be in center field or not. I think if they get a true center fielder, somebody that's quality defensively and can help them offensively, then maybe Nimmo uh, takes over in that spot in right field uh, that is going to probably be vacated by uh, Conforto. I like Castellanos from um, Cincinnati as well. I think he's a guy that could do well in that Mets outfield. He's got some pop, obviously, that right-handed bat to go with Alonzo. Uh, with a lot of other lefties to mix in there. Could be an interesting balance in that Mets lineup. But um, I like Marte there, and I think he's a guy that is doable and I think is a guy that could give them um, a little bit more of that all-around player with the speed, defense, and um, you know, average at the top of that lineup. All right, we're back. Talking Mets podcast here on this uh, Sunday mid-November, just before Thanksgiving, and, uh, you know, who knows with the hot stove how much we'll get pre-December 1st, how much we'll get after. I still have a feeling we're going to have a long lockout, and um, I I don't think things are going to get pretty. Before I get to the Mets transactions here, first I want to say a couple quick things. One, I think it's great that nobody in the media could get any leaks about this uh, this situation. I mean, even Adam Cromie, I mean, I know he's been out of the league four years, but he, he was with Washington for a decade. You can't really get a lot out of him. They got a little statement from Mike Rizzo, GM of the Nationals, but not a lot out of him. Billy Epler, I mean, you're not... 
They really don't have a feel about how this process worked. And Alderson didn't give them very much at the GM meetings. And Carlsbad, it's amazing. The Mets have done an outstanding job of plugging the leaks. It's driving the media nuts. And uh, it's really, in a way, they have to themselves, and they obviously don't care, it's created a lot of bad press for them. And a lot of hopelessness, I think, in the fan base, which has to be translating into people re-upping with season tickets. I really think it'll be interesting to see, um, because there's been so much negativity and so much disappointment since the the All-Star break last year, how uh, early season ticket sales go. Now, look, also, whether free agency happens on time or in a very short period post-New Year, Sign some big players, all be forgiven. But I know a lot of the time they like to get those season ticket plans in early. You like to have some cost certainty or some revenue certainty, not cost certainty, revenue certainty, you know, going into the season. But with this owner, it's maybe not as important. But if I know anything reading Black Edge and what you hear about Steve Cohen, every department down to ticket sales is going to be held accountable to win and achieve at a very high level. Uh, with that, whatever their scope is. So, uh, off-season philosophy when it comes to players. Here it's funny. We have no GM in place. But you do have Sandy Alderson. You have Bryn Alderson. You have Ian Levin. You have Tommy Tanis, who's director of scouting and whatnot. Um, and go, so on and so forth. So, you have guys in the organization. You have this analytics department. I already signed this this pitcher, Fish, that uh, seems to be another guy that high strikeout rate bounced around, was out of baseball. They're looking for guys, very clear, guys that can miss bats. That's the game right now. There's, there's no secret about that. That's not nearly any news. But uh, the Mets basically came out and told you that the qualifying offer and players that are attached to it are probably going to be, they're going to be more cautious with those kind of players. They have two draft picks. Neither is protected. They would lose the 14th pick. Uh, the farm system, although they have some really interesting players at the top that we've talked about quite a bit, Brett Beatty, uh, Alvarez, um, you know, Mauricio, so on. And and who knows, I think now that we've had a year of normal minor league baseball, uh, what kind of component players or relievers or starters. There's, I think you're going to see that the Mets have some guys in the system that could contribute, uh, at least on a complementary basis. I don't think it's completely barren, but obviously their top 10 or their overall depth, uh, you saw that throughout the summer is not where it needs to be. Uh, That's why you had Robert Stock making starts and what have you. But as far as players and and the value, and I'm all for, you know, I don't care about these draft picks. I think whether you pick 11, 14, second round, you know, if you're a good scouting uh, team and you're out there really doing your work, uh, I mean, let's face it, Jacob deGrom was, a, what, a ninth-round pick? Seth Lugo was uh, very deep into the draft. You know, you'll find guys, and that's really where you make your chops, is the guys that, you know, you don't expect to be anything. I mean, look, Gavin Shashini was a, t- a first-round pick for the Mets. First-round picks don't always work out. But you don't want to, especially after you blew up your pick this year with the Kumar Rocker fiasco, you don't want to start just throwing picks around if the free agent isn't worth it. And when you look at the names that are tied to qualifying offer, Nick Castellanos, Corey Sager, Marcus Simeon, Brandon Belt, Carlos Correa. Uh, one guy on here that I would have been interested in is Razel Iglesias, uh, you know, maybe as kind of a closer, maybe move Diaz to a setup role. 
Um, you know, Chris Taylor was another name that I was interested in. Versatile player for the Dodgers. He has a qualifying offer. Justin Verlander would have been nice on a one-year deal. You're not going to see any of these guys because the Mets aren't going to want to give a pick for them. It's not going to happen. I think the other thing that is interesting, and they didn't really talk about it at the winter meeting, winter meetings, the GM meetings, is that anyone paying attention in the Arizona Fall League, and I think this really is a big deal when it comes to the Mets' decision on how they go with certain players. Brett Beatty's having a really good Arizona Fall League, following a really good season where he ended up in Double A. And I think he's a guy that, you know, maybe he's not going to be a star off the bat, you know, uh, coming up. But I think he could be a really solid big leaguer and maybe as early as this year. Everybody's saying, well, you know, he's, he was in, you know, Brooklyn earlier this year. And how can you say that, Mike? I've seen some of that. Guys, you know, is he 21 years old? He's going to be 22. I think he was 22 or just turned 22 on November 13th. David Wright was already a starter established in the big leagues. As an everyday player, so is Jose Reyes. So I don't want to hear about it. Now, I'm not suggesting he's right or Reyes, and I know those were special players, but they were given positions, and they say, here, go out and, and earn them. Now, you want to have a veteran that kind of spells them a little bit in case they flop. But I think if Brett Beatty, similar to Pete Alonso a couple of years ago, is really emerging in a big-time way, uh, I think it changes their need to go out and quite honestly, sign somebody uh, where third base is their primary position. Now, it sounds like they're not going. And it's been you've been feeling this for a while. They're very disappointed in Michael Conforto, and Scott Boris seems to believe that he can get this mega contract. To me, Conforto is a twenty-five million dollar year player. I personally would only want to go four years. He'll never sign for four years. I think more realistically, six years, one hundred fifty million. I'm guessing that Boris wants more than that. He probably wants to be a seven-year contract, and he's probably looking to go a little north of twenty-five. But you know, if you know, if Bryce Harper's making twenty-five a year on average, so should Michael Conforto. And you could argue Michael Conforto should make less. But I think right now they're choosing between Baez and Conforto. And the, it was very interesting hearing what Andrew Baggerly, who covers the Giants, what he said on MLB Network about Chris Bryant, that. And I don't know if you guys saw that, that they weren't very impressed with Bryant, especially defensively. And they didn't feel he was athletic enough where, as a right-handed bat, his swing won't age well going into his 30s. See, Bryant, to me, if you can get him on a shorter-term deal, if there's some skepticism about him, if the economy and the lockout, potential lockout, uh, shrinks his market. Now, you would think without a qualifying offer that wouldn't happen. But if he's really looking for big money and for whatever reason he doesn't get it and he decides to maybe sign a shorter-term deal, then I feel differently about Chris Bryant. But right now, if you told me, listening to that feedback and after watching Baez and how athletic he is and how versatile he is and how he could win so many games, and I think um, Sandy Alderson said it best that how he would fit well in New York because nothing seems to phase him. And I think some of that attitude is needed on this team, which is a pretty vanilla team. And you've invested so much in Lindor. I mean, this is this is the marriage that started all this. This was the 10-year deal that will define the early years of the Steve Cohen ownership. If this is his buddy and it's going to make him feel better, 
and together they're going to be better. Maybe part of what made Baez better is that Lindor being there and, and helping him a little bit with maybe his approach. We don't know that, but you have to think, when you like where you play and you have somebody there as a support system, it can only make both of these guys better. They can be extremely dynamic. And the fact that they play up the middle and that Baez can play multiple positions, he can play three infield positions, that's huge. Yes, I know so can Brian, but Brian is more of a corner outfield at third baseman. Someone who can play second, thir- third, and short and play pretty darn well, that's a big deal. So to me, I think it sounds like Conforto's gone. Baez is a guy they'll sign. And if Brett Beatty is really somebody that has an opportunity to uh, emerge this year, I'm not saying out of spring training. I'm sure they're going to want to get him some bats in AAA in Syracuse, the very least a month to six weeks. Then you know what? You really don't need to go out and sign a third baseman. You could put McNeil there. And heck, maybe you bring back VR on a short-term deal, maybe a two-year deal, as kind of that veteran stopgap. And let's face it, if there's an injury to Lindor or to, to Baez, you know, VR is another guy that could play. He's shown he could play three positions. That versatility off the bench is huge. He seemed to like it here. He's got pop. Uh, I don't know if it was injuries or what or philosophy. He, he definitely could steal more bases and has more speed than they've let, they've let on. I mean, you start to have VR and Baez and Lindor, and then you start to say, okay, what is the next tier of offense that we could go out that's not going to break the bank and give a solid contract? And and obviously you heard it in the, uh, the the promo coming in, or you heard John Hopper talk about it, and there's been some buzz. I think Starling Marte, and you're going to laugh because uh, some of those who have been listening to the show for a long time knows that know, know that I was really against trading for Starling Marte a couple of years back. Now, it was a little bit different. You know, he was uh, obviously coming off uh, a couple of good years in Pittsburgh, and I wasn't really into trading Brandon Nimmo for him. Or the, it seemed like the Pirates were looking for a rich package. And, um, you know, he's been really good. He's a guy that hits for average, steals bases, has a little bit of pop, doesn't necessarily strike out a ton. He's really cut down his strikeouts over the course of his career. Uh, he showed that he could play for a winning team in Oakland, and that was one of the things he, he had. You know, early in his career, he played for some good Pirates teams, uh, but it had been a while where he played for a winning team. Uh, defensively, he's okay. Uh, you know, if you told me, and you know, one of the things I think that you're going to see this off season, that if you eliminate the qualifying offer, I think the Mets are going to spend a lot of money. And Joel Sherman talked a little bit about this in that same column in the Post. But I think that's similar to how they went out and they signed v- VR and Pilar and they got Aaron Loop on a value deal. And they really were trying to pay big dollars in the secondary and tertiary market. I don't think the Mets need to go out and sign a star at every position. I think if you put together an offseason where you bring back Baez on a reasonable deal, like you're going to have to pay big dollars, but you can't give them a 10-year deal. You know, maybe like, you know... You know, six years, a hundred and you know, what is it, thirty million a year, hundred and eighty million dollars, or something like that. He's going to get thirty to thirty-two million a year. Let's face it. How many years? That's a whole different story. But if you come back and you sign Marte to play center field, you put VR as like kind of a caddy with the specter of possibly Beatty coming in. You have McNeil that could play multiple positions. I wouldn't give up on him here. You've got Alonzo at first. You got Lindor at short. You got your McCann Nito behind the plate. Um, Nimmo could move over to left. You put Marte in center. And then face it, maybe you go out and get an Eddie Rosario or Jorge Solar. I hate to start to, or, or an Adam Duvall and right. I hate to fall in love 
with players that had good, you know, short, small sample size. And I wouldn't give them big money. But there may be a possibility that some of these guys, they're not sexy. They're not the top of the market. But if you pay them a little bit on a shorter term deal, you're not locking yourself up forever like you did with a Lindor that you're going to have to do with Baez. And you can get yourself a really solid player. Look, the Braves won a championship because they won out. And yeah, they have Freddie Freeman and Albies, and they had Acuna for a while, and Austin Riley played like an MVP. But they had a lot of guys that were component-type players up and down that roster that if you put them on a free agent market, they're not necessarily the first choice. The Mets have to start dominating that. That's not all you do, because I think you have to continue to go out and win. I don't believe that the Mets can get where they're going to get by tearing it down and rebuilding. They have to win, and the owner has to show he's going to spend money, and that within the course of wherever they want to get as far as their infrastructure of churning out prospects and homegrown players and being the best at whatever it is analytically they want to achieve, they got to win in the interim, and you can. This idea that you have to have this process, like the Philadelphia 76ers or the Astros, like the Cubs, never was like that. When Omar Minaya took over in 2004, the Mets were about as far away from a championship as you could think that fall. And two years later, they were in Game 7 of the NLCS, and they probably should have won that game, and they probably should have won the World Series. Like that. Now, Wright and Reyes had a lot to do with that, but they very quickly went out and got Beltron and got Delgado. They didn't have a great farm system, and that undid them in a lot of ways. So this idea that you have to have a process... It's all money ball gobbledygook. It's gobbledygook. Gobbledygunk. It's all stupid. It's it's stupid. It it's it doesn't make any sense. It does doesn't make any sense. So um to me that would be an interesting offseason. And then you go out, but you could bring back loop. I think the real question is pitching wise, how crazy does the Strowman market go? You don't have to go out and sign every big-time reliever. Look, there's guys like Ryan Terpera, Andrew Chafin, Joe Smith. I mean, there's so many guys that are going to be on this market, especially in what will work well for the Mets is after this lockout. I'm I'm assuming there's going to be a lockout and a lengthy one that's going to last since January, maybe February 1st. There'll be that frenzy to sign everybody. You know, the Mets might be able to come in and get guys who just want to sign a one-year deal and reestablish themselves somewhere because they're going to be afraid to be uh, the last guy with musical chairs and get nothing. So I think you're seeing where the Mets are going to go is where they'll go out and get a couple of big names. And maybe Baez, Stroman, Lupa, like the big, like their own free agents where they're within their position they'll have to pay big for. Baez being the biggest. But I think the rest of it can be... Good players in the B group that don't require a lot of multi-year deals. I mentioned some of those names like Salar, Rosario, just a couple. And I'll throw you another thing. You know, let's assume there's a DH in the National League. Well, Robinson Cano's coming back. And I know you're going to roll your eyes because of the steroids and what have you. But outside of the first half of 2019 when he was in New York... And that one season in 2008, where he had a really bad season for the Yankees, Robinson Cano has been an elite offensive player. And I think you could do a lot worse at DH. He had a really good pandemic-shortened season. He's a veteran. I think he can help in that in that locker room with guys like Lindor and Baez. I think they missed him a little bit. Um, I know what you're saying is, well, probably started taking steroids. That's why he had a really good second half at 19. We don't know that. 
We don't know that. I have a hard time believing his whole entire career is based on steroids. Uh, obviously, he has a lot of explaining to do. How he handles that will be interesting. He's going to be in spring training. He's making $20 million a year. And I think if he comes back and he hits the tar out of the ball, and not only is he could probably be a DH, but, I mean, he could play first, he could play second. Not that he's great at uh, on defense. I got to think that, you know, he was, he was losing a step before all this. I'm thinking a year off probably didn't help. But and more versatility. I mean, you have the bones of a good team. But you got to make the right component player decisions. You got to build up the depth. You got to continue to draft well. You got to continue to develop this farm system. And think about it. I'm not, you know, it doesn't require David Stearns with Theo Epstein to come in. And I mean, this is not rocket science here. It really isn't. So I think we learned a little bit. Not that Sandy gave us a lot of the GM meetings. He was better. At least he was better. His performance was better at the GM meetings than it was that uh, final, uh, that first press conference post the end of the season. He was awful on that. It was very uninspiring. And I think created a lot of bad press over the last few weeks. So the real question is, you know, where will the Mets go? I mean, right now we're just speculating. To me, that's a very solid plan. I think I, I, I think that the the quote by Andrew Baggerly is a cautionary tale for Bryant. I think the only way you get involved in that is on a very short-term deal where that market shrinks a little bit. And uh, I think Javi Baez should be a priority. He won me over. Uh, I think, you know, seven years, uh, six or seven years at $30 million is probably what it's going to take. You're probably going to want some guarantees at the end of that contract with some options. I don't know if that's going to be possible. Uh, you know, and look, everybody talks about Correa and Sager and, oh, they could move positions. Look at Tra- uh, Trey Turner. He, he didn't like playing second base. You don't want to start taking good shortstops. They're shortstops. I know A-Rod did it for Jeter, a Hall of Famer, for the Yankees in a unique situation. Nobody else wants to do that. They want to play shortstop. Lindor's the shortstop. You have your shortstop. The only reason Baez is an option is, A, he can play second base. B, he's friends with Lindor. I think if you didn't have that second component, I'm not sure he would be interested in going off a shortstop for the Mets and playing second base. It'd be a totally different conversation. So uh, so that's what we learned. So it was an interesting week. I think we learned kind of where the Mets are as an organization. I wanted to clarify, you know, my feelings on analytics. And then we got to learn a little bit about maybe how the Mets are going to approach the offseason through some names out there. And now the fun begins as we head into the holidays. And it's going to get, I think, a little bit, um, light news. I mean, the next big news is the Mets are going to hire someone. You got to think before Thanksgiving this happens, and then it will be interesting. Will there be a flurry of activity before December first, that week after Thanksgiving, or will we start to talk about the CBA? And one, um, and I'll leave with this before we wrap up and take a break, and then uh, wrap up the show. One ominous comment was how uh, you know I think it was an agent saying that. The only way the players get any leverage is if they lose games. And uh, will this group of players, will this new generation of players be willing to do that if they feel the offers they're getting are less than uh, acceptable? Uh, you know a generation of guys in the 90s did. And they they, they, they lost big. Now, they sh- they struck and, and they, you know... You know, they, they were staring down the barrel of a salary cap. I mean, I don't know. These guys are not staring down the barrel of a salary cap, but... It certainly is a situation where analytics and information, and I think it was very well put out there to talk about how the middle class of baseball, where you have the very wealthy players and you have the minimum wage players, and the middle class of guys are always seem, seeming to take the shaft on years and money. 
And, uh, you know, look, you get a Jonathan VR one year, $3 million. That really shouldn't happen when you think about what he does and, and the kind of player he is and the kind of money that's out there in the market. So that's a perfect example. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll return and wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at mikesilva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, talkingmetspodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final thoughts. So what's next? I mean, we have the Thanksgiving holiday coming up. Uh, One idea I've had that I wanted to share with you, and I've reached out to a few people, and it'll be a panel of four. I'm thinking of doing, and I know what everyone's saying, you know, everybody, and I, I wonder, you know, who went to the Queens Baseball Convention yesterday i didn't have a chance to go i wasn't invited to do any panels and nor will i ever be a that group for whatever reason doesn't like me doesn't like the show i was actually on a panel either once or twice early on i think the last one i did was when they were still at Mul, uh not mulcahy's when they were at mcfadden's over by city field i did one. i think it was january of 2014 and uh Really enjoyed doing it. Mark Healy does a great job on the State of the Mets, that panel. Uh, couldn't make it yesterday. I mean, I got, you know, so many things going on on the weekends. It's not something that I could just pick up and do. Uh, I would have loved to have been there. But honestly, when you have a, a vibe from the those who run it that they don't like you, they don't like your show, you know, do you really want to support it? Um, I think the Mets should do a better job of having something like that and kind of helping those guys a little bit. Mulcahy's is a great place. I've been there for concerts, actually. Funny, I saw Vince Neal at a concert Mulcahy's many, many years ago. So, tell you, nice venue. Um, but, um, so, you know, I kind of got the brainstorm that maybe we should have our panel, a fan panel where I'm kind of the host, similar to like, you know, an H, you know, I think of like how Bill Maher does his show and has a panel again, not trying to get political. I'm just trying to talk about the mechanics of a, of a, know a news show um and i'm working on that i think it's going to be really cool i'm trying to find a diverse group of fans and we can look at the state of the mets and i'm looking to do that in the next couple of weeks so stay tuned i'm going to reach out to some people that i uh believe would be good good candidates on that we'll get you on zoom you get to see my ugly mug on zoom not that the zoom will be on uh on uh on uh on on uh you know the uh on the Twitter, but uh, you'll hear the audio and whatnot. So I'm working on that. And, you know, of course, we're really waiting. And I think what's stopping us from really going to the next phase of this offseason is this GM announcement. I think when that happens, I would love to get somebody from the, you know, beat writer or somebody that covers the team on and have a discussion. But I, I really thought today it was important to give you what I learned from the GM meetings. And I feel I'm on on point. I feel I'm on point about the organization and kind of why now is it's not a big deal about who they bring in, throw a blanket over them. It's who fits in the best with the overall philosophy that's set up by Steve Cohen. And as far as the offseason philosophy, Sandy gave you just enough where Javi Baez is probably a real possibility. Michael Conforto's not. They're gonna pro- I think they're going to try to go out and dominate some of the second and third tier players. Um, they can build a winning team. 
And I think anybody who's attached to a qualifying offer, because their farm system has been really hit over the last couple of years, I don't see a name out there, as much as I would even like a Castellanos, uh, I just don't see a name where they would say, I have to have that guy to give up the pick. Sure, a Correa or a Sager or one of those guys would be great, but you have Lindor at short, and the guy that doesn't require a qualifying offer and has played here and has that moxie to play here in Baez, well, you know, that's the guy. He, you know, you have a known quantity to a certain degree. Go after him. He's willing to move to second base, and he can play multiple positions, including the outfield and maybe first base. So you can't go wrong with that. So stay tuned. You know, when this announcement comes down, We'll be here to talk about it. We will have somebody connected with the the media to come on, unless they all hate me now. I don't think so. And uh, sit tight, and then, you know, we're going to be working on getting our panel together uh, sometime uh, right after the holiday or somewheres around there, and I think that'll be a lot of fun. We're going to keep trying way different things as this show continues to grow. It's been outstanding, the feedback we've gotten, especially since we've gotten into the fan-sided partnership. Uh, our, our listenership is up. Our exposure is up, and uh, it's all because of you. And uh, I don't want to get thankful here because we'll talk about being thankful on uh, Thanksgiving, but I am very thankful for the growth of this show. Every year we've grown, uh, despite the skepticism from the mainstream, despite the skepticism from many who uh, like to take shots at this show or try to bring it down. It continues to grow, and I am very thankful for you listening and hopefully I explain myself, and, and I know some of you didn't like the analytics show last week, and uh, you know I, I hopefully you understood a little bit more about where I was coming from. And I have major concerns about the direction of this team in terms of how heavy they're going into the numbers, but that's baseball in 2021, and I don't think it's going to change. So buckle up. You're going to have to figure out a way to win with what's in front of us. All right, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Of course, check out our friends over at Fansided and RisingApple.com. Great partners over at the Fansided Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast soon. Till then, take care, everybody.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.